Amen. You can remain standing as we read our passage today. God's Word. I ask you to listen carefully. This is God's Word from Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. It says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice, and I will rejoice. Heaven and earth will pass away, but what Jesus said, what you just read, never will. Let me pray for us. God, have your way in our time. Uh, may your word become life to us. May it open our eyes and our hearts and set our feet on a path that honors and leads to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can have a seat. Amen. Amen. Well, again, welcome. We're glad you're here with us this morning. We are uh, continuing our series. We're in part three of the book of Philippians uh, that we're calling The Pursuit of Joy. Uh, when I graduated from seminary in 2003, immediately got to fly to Okinawa and uh, be a pastor among a military community. And not only that, I had a, a contract to work on base with the young adult young adults in the military. So think college ministry, think uh, a really good time, uh, lots of scuba diving and snorkeling and night fishing and uh, lots of sports and uh, always kayaking, canoeing, jet skiing, uh, all those things. It, it was awesome. And every Thanksgiving, we would have this massive uh, Thanksgiving Day turkey bowl uh, flag football tournament. And uh, just awesome, because I was in my mid-late 20s, and these guys were 18, 19, 20, 22 years old, and, and it, was, it was a good time, and every year I looked forward to that, but uh, something happened. Every year, I was a year older, and they were the same age, like, they were just keep rotating out, and so it would go on and go on, and so the last Thanksgiving, I was like, okay, I'm, I'm going to be playing quarterback all the time this time, because I can't run anymore with these guys, and uh, uh, it was a, a fun community. I love working with and serving the military in that way. Fun, uh, gospel-pursuing community. But there were some challenges to pastoring in that particular community. Some of the healthiest people in the world. I mean, you couldn't even be in the military if you, if you didn't have some level of health. And, and you couldn't even go to Okinawa if anyone in your family had any kind of sickness because the, the U.S. wasn't going to send your family over there with that. So it was this very healthy, very vibrant, uh, kind of we're going to live forever kind of community. And, and uh, so when I would preach, and I would preach about how, hey, life is short, and you are going to get sick, and you are going to die, I would get just the eye rolls. Yeah, whatever, Mark. I, I just did a CrossFit workout. I eat paleo, and I'm about to down a kale shake. So I'm good, Mark. Uh, there, that, that's for somebody else, and theoretically, it's possible that someone would get sick. But even if someone did get sick, uh, they would get shipped out of Okinawa and sent back home to, to go to a uh, a hospital in California or Virginia or, or wherever. And so just this very vibrant community, young community. 
Uh, you drive on base and go to what would be the grocery store, the commissary, and uh, uh, just uh, just remember, there, like here, there was many many parking spots for for disabled, uh, but they were always empty, just taking up space. And so coming back here, like, hey, people park in those places. That's strange. But um, that was weird. My wife reminded me this week that uh, when she would go shopping in the commissary, one time, uh, one of our little t- kids, maybe two years old, uh, pointed, hey, hey, mommy, th- that man has white hair and wrinkles. And Jennifer's like, it was such an oddity to see anyone over 30 years old on base. And so this was just kind of the community. So it's gonna, we're going to live forever. We're gonna, uh, and so um, when I would say, hey, the Bible says if you live long enough, the book of Ecclesiastes says if you make it far enough, a day is coming where you're going to wake up and say, why did I get up today? I just want to be done. Like stuff is going to run out. All the things that you're going to pursue, Ecclesiastes says, in the end, if you take them to their full extent, they will not satisfy you. But it's hard when uh, you have your whole life ahead of you and everything seems good. Now, that was that community. But honestly, we're not that different here in uh, suburban Colorado. Uh, we, we might have a little bit more diversity of age, but, but no one here this morning is thinking, you know, I really, life is really short, and uh, I'm going to end my days pretty soon. And yet, um, the Bible tells us that on this side of eternity, there is going to be uh, a brokenness, and that if, if we put our hope in all the things that, that the book of Ecclesiastes, the author, did, uh, at the end of the day, if that's all we have, we are we're going to be sorry people. Now, the book of Philippians, we call it the book of joy because 16 times in four chapters, Paul is going to talk about joy and rejoicing. But, but you could also call the book of Philippians a book of suffering. And that doesn't make sense to us because joy and suffering, they, they seem like opposites, right? Like, like there, there's joy and, and then there's suffering. And in our day, uh, if there's any suffering, you, you get away from that. And so we, we pursue, and, and they're good things that we pursue. We pursue, you know, we're, we're wealthy enough. Most of you can pursue the education you want. You can pursue where you want to live. You can pursue the spouse that you want. And, and all these things that you, we think, if we get enough of those, if our, if our kids are cute enough, if uh, we put them in enough programs, then they'll be successful. If our dog is friendly, that'd be awesome as well. And if uh, we're going to plan for retirement, which in our mind just means like a 25-year vacation plan. That's, that's our plan. Like if we could just go on vacation for 25 years, then we have arrived. But again, I'm, I'm, I'm going to say, and Paul's going to reframe for us, that, that, that life is going to hit us. And if we're together for any amount of time, it's going to hit some of us, and we would do well. Psalm 90 tells us that we would do well to teach us, O oh Lord, to number our days so that we might live a life of wisdom. And Paul is going to show us that suffering is not the opposite of joy, but that, that if we can reframe our suffering, uh, it actually becomes a conduit for our joy. Psalm 73 says, Lord, whom have I in heaven but you? And nothing on earth has I desire, I have, do I desire but you. Can anyone honestly say that here? Nothing on earth has anything I desire but you, God. And if God is gracious to us, 
in shaping and forming Christ in us, there will be times where he strips everything away from us so that nothing on earth is there that we would desire but him. And so Paul says, don't worry about suffering. Suffering isn't something to be pursued, but it it is something that God will use for your joy, that if we would seek and savor God's purposes above our own, our joy will rise above our circumstances. See, because a day is coming where you will get sick. A day is coming where you and I will die. A day is coming where uh, all that we had hoped for in our marriages uh, will grow cold at at times. And uh, your dog's going to grow old and die. And your kids might not be as successful as you'd hoped for. And there'll be frustration and toil at at work. And after you've put in 50 years there, uh, probably all that you had hoped for in your retirement will not come to fruition. And if your hope is, is in, on all the things that we get to pursue and, and live in a time that we actually get to achieve many of them, but if our hope is in that, when they get stripped away, what will we, we be left with? And Paul is going to show us, hey, there's something better than all those things. They're, those are good things. Don't get me wrong. Those are good things. And we live in a day when we get to enjoy many, many more good things than probably anyone else on the history of the planet. But only in America could we then uh, take those things and make them the ultimate thing. Only in the church in America could we say, hey, God wants you to be healthy and wealthy. Uh, Hey, God wants your best life now. That is garbage. And those clowns that stand up on television and say, God wants you healthy and wealthy, man, I hope that God brings some wrath on them. It is terrible theology. And we need in the church today a, a, a doctrine of suffering that is going to carry us through so that, that it isn't seen as something that God is against us when we suffer, but that God is for us in our suffering. We need to go deeper in our theology. That's why this Philippians is, is a book of joy and suffering. And if we say only God blesses us when things are going the way we hope, then we have a very shallow faith. And we're exporting that doctrine, that heresy to the, to the poorest parts of this world. And woe to those that would say, God only wants you healthy and wealthy. And if you don't have health and you don't have wealth, it's probably because you don't have enough faith or you haven't given enough money or all these terrible, terrible things that really are empty because even the health and wealth preachers get sick and die. And they have no context for that. Wealth and money and status and success, those are very shallow things. Those are things that we can enjoy. As Christians, we can roll those up into praise to God. I mean, I had a a steak dinner last night with a good beer, and uh, that was leading to praise. But that cannot be ultimate in my life. I can't live for those things. But I can take those things and say, God, you have blessed me. But this this is just one evidence of your grace in my life. And if you take all this away and all I have is you, that is enough. See, the gospel is this, that when you receive the gospel, you know what you get? It isn't that you get to live forever and you get to see your loved ones and it's going to be awesome. All that, it may be true, but what you get in the gospel is you get God. And if there's nothing else that you would get, and at the end of the day, you get God, that is enough. But if you're, you're saying, oh, I'll come to God if I get all those other things, and, and you could kind of take or leave the God piece of it, then you haven't understood the gospel. 
And the great irony in that is you don't get anything else either. God is the gospel. It's the reason why we gather here so that we can get and behold and see and savor God. So when we see and savor God's purposes, our joy will rise above our circumstances. And that's what we see in this passage today. Paul is writing to the church about 10 years later after he's planted the Philippian church. And he says this, Imagine all the things he's gone through, and and he's writing to a church that loves, and they're concerned about him. And he says this in verse 12, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So that's, that's an interesting five little words, what has happened to me. He doesn't even tell them. I mean, we have the book of Acts, so we kind of know what has happened to him. If you and I were writing a letter to some friends and we went through the things that Paul went through, we might unpack that a little bit more. We might talk about, yeah, I've been beaten several times. I got left for dead at one point, and I went back in the city to preach the gospel again. We might tell that story. We read that in the book of Acts. Or we might tell the story about in Acts chapter 20 when the Holy Spirit revealed to Paul, hey, you're going to go to Jerusalem and things aren't going to go well for you. You're going to be beaten and you're going to be in prison, uh, but go ahead, Paul. And then in Acts chapter 21, uh, a prophet named Agabus comes to Paul when he's in Caesarea and says, takes off Paul's belt and wraps it around his hands and his feet and he says, the owner of this belt is going to be bound and imprisoned if he goes to Jerusalem. And the, the Christians in Caesarea are like, yeah, Paul, uh, don't do that because it's going to go poorly for you. So just stay here. You, you're the, you're, I mean, you're the lead church planner. You're the lead missionary. So please stay here. And Paul's like, yeah, I know. The, the Holy Spirit told me the same thing. I'm going. And so he goes to Jerusalem and sure enough, the, 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 the crowd, the, the Jewish religious authorities rise up against him. Four guys take an oath saying, we're not going to eat until Paul is dead. <laughs> I mean, and so they, they, they capture him and they imprison him. Uh, the Roman officials take control of him and protect him, really. And then they, they say, this, this man's not worthy of death. Let's just let him go. And Paul says, no, I, I appeal to Caesar as a Roman citizen. And Festus and Agrippa are like, what are you talking about, Paul? We could have let you go. He's like, no, that's all right. And so Paul goes and, and uh, gets on a ship, and, and the ship, there's a shipwreck, and he spends a day and the night in the open sea floating on wood before he gets washed up on shore. On shore, he starts to start a fire. He reaches into a wood pile, gets bit by a, a venomous viper. I mean, a lot has happened to him. He eventually gets on to Rome, and uh, the book of Acts kind of ends unceremoniously. It just kind of says at the very end, and Paul spent at least two years there in Rome in prison. And that's how it ends. And so he's been in prison for a couple years, and now he's writing this letter to the Philippians. But all he says is, I want you to know what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Because Paul is concerned not with his own affairs, but he's concerned with that which matters most, the advancement of the gospel. He loves to see God's purposes worked out in his life. And he says what has happened has really served to advance the gospel. It would have been a shock, a surprise. The church would have been concerned for Paul, saying, man, what are we going to do as a church? Our leader is, is in prison. But more than that, like, how, how is he going to continue to do the ministry God has called him to? 
And Paul says, my chains are not a hindrance to God's work in my life. They're actually a conduit for God's work in my life. Now, everyone in here has some, in some way, shape, or form, chains in their life. You, a disruption in your life, a, a struggle in a relationship, a, a difficulty financially, a difficulty in your work, some way, shape, or form, uh, you see some circumstance in your life that you would like to shift and make better. And here's the big truth for you and for me this morning. That the very area where you think the work of God is hindered in your life is probably the very area where God is working in your life. So if you, if you are, are struggling with singleness, God has a purpose for that. If you're struggling in your marriage, God has purposes for that. If you're struggling with your career path and it hasn't gone the way you had hoped, hoped it to go, God has a purpose. It's not a hindrance to the gospel and God's work in your life. It may, in fact, be the conduit for God either shaping and forming Christ in you or using you to shape and form Christ in others. This is a hard truth, but it's an amazing truth. I, had, I came to grips with this this week like... Because to be honest, my plans were, not, were to be preaching the gospel here in Czech, not here, but uh, 3,000 miles away. My plans, we moved our family from Japan to the Czech Republic. We learned the language for two years. Our kids went to public schools. We were about to launch Redemption Brno, and uh, God said, no, your plans, we'll just throw those to the side. To be honest, it's been a struggle for us, and today it's still a struggle for me. I had no plans to be here. And I was like, God, don't you know, we, we spent all this money and all this time learning this terrible language, and um, it really is awful, and uh, we're doing this for you, and so we want to make your name known amongst the most atheist country in the world. God, clearly this is the path for you to make your name known, and God said, no. Don't need your help. Thank you very much. I will make my name known. I will be exalted in the nations. Thank you very much, Mark. But you're going back to suburban Colorado. Like, sweet. <laughs> and so as I studied this this week, I was just like, wow, God, I need to quit thinking about, hey, if things could just shift in my life, then he could use me and say, you, you want to use my struggles and my chains right now for the advancement of your purposes. And when my purposes become your purpose, my joy will rise above my struggles and my pain, no matter what it is, no matter what it is. And Paul, Paul, Paul knows this on several levels. He knows it the, uh, theologically. He, he, he was a student of Gamaliel. He probably had the entire Old Testament memorized. And so as he's in prison, he's probably thinking of those stories, thinking of stories like Joseph, whose brothers sold him into slavery. And uh, for many years, he spent time in prison. And then he would get out of prison and he'd rise up amongst the ranks. And then he'd go back into prison. And then he'd get out and he'd rise up. And eventually, Joseph's brothers who sold him into slavery, talk about chains and, and wondering about God's purposes in your life eventually Joseph rises up to second in command in Egypt and saves all of Israel, saves all of his brothers. But his brothers realize, uh-oh, this guy we, we, we left for dead, and now he's got the power to do something to, to us. And in Genesis chapter 50, uh, verse 20, Joseph says to his brothers, what you meant for evil, God intended for good. 
And Paul is thinking about this in prison. God is, God is still God. God doesn't need any of us to accomplish his purposes. And yet he's using these chains not as a hindrance to the gospel, but like, a, like an electrical outlet, like a cord, a conduit to the gospel. They're, they're going to, uh, the gospel is expanding because of my chains. It's, it's amazing truth for Paul and for us. But he also knows it personally, Right? I mean, in Philippi, Paul was in chains in prison. He had been beaten and, and uh, almost killed. But as the, him and Silas prayed at night, the, the God sent an earthquake and the chains fell off. So I wonder every day if Paul wondered, hey, is this the day, God, that you're going to drop these chains again? I've seen you do it before. So it's been a couple years. Maybe tonight it's in an earthquake, God. I wonder if he prayed that prayer. I'd be praying that prayer. God, I know you can do something. You've done it before. So he knows it theologically, he knows it personally, and he gives two evidences of God's grace. John Piper will often say, hey, God is doing 10,000 things in your life, and you may be aware of one or two of them. And so the prayer this morning for some of us here that that are struggling and have, have chains on their life, the prayer for you is, God, just show me one or two ways that you're working because I can't see it in this circumstance. I mean, I only see the negative. Would you just reveal one or two ways? And Paul shows us two, two ways that in his life, the chains become a conduit rather than a hindrance. Verse 13, so that, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest, I don't know who all the rest is, but and to all the rest, that my imprisonment is for Christ. So Paul would have been chained, literally chained, to one of these imperial guards. The imperial guards were like the elite special forces of the Roman Empire. Uh, Historians tell us that uh, at its height, there was about 9,000 of them, and they had uh, possibly more power than Caesar because they had the ability and they actually did assassinate Caesars and raise up new Caesars. So even if you're Caesar over all the land, you didn't want to mess with these guys. Because in an instant, they could take you out. So every day, uh, at all times, Paul was literally chained to one of these guys. And they would go into either four hours or six hour shifts. Think about that for two years. That's over 3,000 of these soldiers chained to him. And Paul's like, sweet, I literally have a captive audience. He's like, this is awesome. And so I can imagine the guy puts on his chains and says, what are you in for? Oh, I'm here because Jesus is Lord. Well, I can see why you're in here, because here in Rome and in the Roman Empire, uh, we say Caesar is Lord. Caesar is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So for you to say someone else, some Jewish dude is Lord, yeah, of course you're in chains. But tell me more about that. Oh, I'll tell you more about that. Uh, You guys have lots of gods. Actually, there's only one God. Through Jesus, he created all things. We've rebelled against him, but, but praise be to God. He is a merciful God, and he, he had a plan from the beginning of history. He sent his son, Jesus, to take on human flesh, to live the life that you could never live, and, and to pay a price that you could never pay. And he's like, oh, really? What's that price? Well, well he died on one of your torture instruments, one of uh, your crosses. So, well, he must have been a bad dude. Oh, he was a bad dude, but not in the way you were thinking. 
On the cross, he he took our sin and gave us his righteousness, and they buried him in a tomb, but the tomb could not hold him. By the power of God, on the third day, he rose again, and he showed that he had conquered death and the grave. And so he has given a commission to his followers that they should make his name known throughout all the earth, that Jesus Christ is Lord of lords and King of kings. Some of these guys are like, man, you are crazy. You're going to get killed if you tell you that. Like, yeah, I am. That's what the Holy Spirit told me. Okay, whatever, dude, just shut up. Or, but some of them listened. And some of them were like, well, can you tell me more about that? Because I've never heard this. And he would unpack the gospel to them for four or six hours a day. And then the next guy would come in, and he would do it again, and he'd do it again. And Paul's saying, hey, every time someone's chained to me, I get to preach the gospel in Rome. And some of these guys are becoming believers, and they're telling other people, and they're becoming believers. So that at the end of Philippians, this is amazing when you think about this. At the end of Philippians, the second to last verse well, I'll just read the third to last. He says, Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. This is amazing. Paul, in his chains, the gospel is not constrained by the chains. The gospel has gone out so that because Paul is in Rome, because he's in prison, because the imperial guards hear the gospel every single day, and it is spreading, it is spreading to Caesar's relatives and his, his children and his aunts and his uncles and his servants. The gospel is finding root at the very center of power in the first century world. And that, the chains were not a hindrance at all. Paul says the evidence of grace is that they are, they are actually uh, accomplishing God's purpose in my life. Verse 14, and most of the brothers, the second evidence of grace, most of the brothers, not all of them, but most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So they're wondering, how is the gospel going to advance if the number one advancer of the gospel is in prison? And he said, well, actually, that vacuum that was created by me getting taken out has been filled hundreds of times over by others saying, hey, it's time for us to take up the mantle. If Paul can do it, we can do it. Here's the deal. Courage is contagious. Courage is contagious. So at Redemption Parker, we, we need people that, are, that have uh, heavy chains to, to bear those chains with great courage because that will encourage all of us. Courage is contagious. I think of three examples uh, his, from history. One about 500 years ago, 1550, uh, someone by the name of Queen Mary took the throne. After her brother who had brought in Reformation into England, uh, Mary wanted to restore the church to the Roman Catholic Church, and so she gathered up all the leaders. She's known as Bloody Mary. Maybe you just know about like saying her name three times in the dark in your mirror, but, but that's not the case. She, she'd gather up the leaders, and, and she would have them thrown into prison, and, and she'd have them burned at the stake. The top three leaders were a guy named Thomas Cranmer, Hugh, Hugh Latimer, and uh, Nicholas Ridley. And Latimer and Ridley spent a couple years in, in the London Tower in prison, eventually taken out, put in prison in Oxford, and eventually she said, burn him at the stake. And so they took uh, Ridley and Latimer in about 1556 uh, to, to burn him at the stake, and um, 
uh, Ridley's brother brought uh, gunpowder to put it on their clothes so that they would uh, catch fire much more quickly so uh, as to be um, gracious to them. Uh, well, they first started with Latimer, and, and R- Ridley was, was nearby, and, um, or maybe the other way around. Let me see here. Yeah, they first started with Ridley, uh, and uh, they, they, they put this, the, the wood around him, but it was fresh wood. It was green wood, so it wasn't burning real hot. Uh, it was burning, but uh, in agony, it was just really melting the skin off his shins and his feet, and he was praying, Lord, please let the fire come to me, God. I, I, let the fire come to me. It's, it's too much. It, it won't overtake me. And he's just crying out in agony, but he's also uh, praying to God through the whole thing. And uh, Mr. Ridley says this famous line. He says, be of good comfort, Mr. Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust never shall be put out. Play the man. Now, a couple observations about that, because... uh, um, Ridley then, they, they, Ridley, they lit Ridley's uh, thing, and his wood was dry wood, and he went up much quicker. And for Latimer, someone had mercy on him, and they took one of the, the lit logs and, and lit his chest on fire where the gunpowder was to eventually take him out. And as they entered into glory, first thing I, I just think is uh, that uh, Latimer's like, hey, hey, Mr. Quickburn, enough with the play the man bit, okay? Um, <laughs> But the other thing is that that did, that courage was contagious. The gospel began to spread and spread north and went to Scotland, and a guy by the name of John Knox took it and just lit not only England on fire, but the continent on fire with the gospel. Play the man. The other example comes from 400 years later, in the mid-50s, the Wheaton Five. You may have heard of a guy named Nate Saint. Or uh, who's the other one I'm thinking of? Uh, Oh, Jim Elliott, of course. There's Ed McCauley, Pete Fleming, Roger Yoder. And they were students at Wheaton. And God gave them a passion for the nations. And so uh, they they looked and said, "Where, where has the gospel not been preached? And so they, with their families and wives, moved down to Ecuador, learned the language, and, and they wanted to reach the Aka Indians. And uh, these Indians were known as the most aggressive, violent people, warring with all the other tribes. And so they would fly in, and they would drop a long basket and give, give gifts uh, to this tribe. They would fly around this basket, and they would take it out. And eventually, the tribe would then put in uh, gifts for, for the missionaries. And so they put like a monkey head, at, literally, in the basket, and it was a gift to them. And, and so after a couple months of kind of this friendly, from a distance uh, relationship, they um, decided they were going to try to make contact. And so they found a, a beach sandbar about two kilometers away from the village, and they landed on the sandbar. And through some confusion and otherwise, uh, the, as the Indians came upon them, although the missionaries had weapons, uh, they did not raise their weapons. The, the Indians came and, and martyred these five guys. And their courage was contagious. News of this went back to the campus at Wheaton, and hundreds and thousands of Wheaton students at that moment got a heart for the nations and, and began to uh, sign up with different agencies and go. And Life magazine got, got hold of the story and, and published it across the nation. And, and many, many more, countless others, said, uh, Jesus is worth it. 
We want to go. We want to fill the gap. We want to do what they weren't able to do. And Elizabeth Elliot, the wife of Jim Elliot, moved back and began to, among the persecutors of her husband, share the gospel so that the one that even killed her husband became a believer, and the whole tribe did as well. And they went from violence to peace because courage is courageous, contagious. One, one last example, more contemporary, I think of our friend Doug Wittenberg. Last summer, uh, we got to go to his 50th birthday party in the park, just hundreds of people. Had this tremendous ministry with Campus Crusade and across the, the city. My wife used to work for him as a grant writer, and um, they had adopted many kids, and they had, uh, a, how old was their youngest? Four, a four-year-old. And about a year before that, uh, Doug had been diagnosed with a very aggressive form of cancer. And so at his 50th birthday, the, the kind of elephant in the park was, this is his last birthday party. So when the time came to uh, sing happy birthday, he said, I want to I say something to the crowd. And, and it was very difficult for him to even talk. It took all of his energy, but uh, he mustered it all up. And he just said, you know, I don't want you to feel sorry for me. I desperately want to see my kids grow up, and we're praying to that end. But I would not change anything over the last year. Jesus has become more precious to me than, than my very life. I would have the opportunity to go on and, and go to some little private prayer meetings for Doug, and we were just begging God, please, Lord, spare his life for the sake of his kids and, and everything. But every time I went there and came back, I remember just saying to Jennifer, we came here to minister to Doug, but he ministered to us. When I grow up, I want to be like him. His courage was contagious. He went to be with the Lord a couple months ago, and um, we're still praying for that, but his legacy continues. Not only is courage contagious, but all the Christian virtues are contagious. So as a church family, as we head out, what kind of community are we going to be? We need people that are courageous so that we can be courageous. We want to be a generous community, so you, we need people that lead the way and say, oh, you, you're generous? I want to be generous. We need a, a sacrificial community. I want to be sacrificial. So how do we see and savor God's purposes above our own so that our joy will rise? How do we do that? Well, first of all, you, you, need, to, you need to be aware of God's purposes. And God has revealed those to us through his word. If you really want your joy to rise and align up with God's purposes, you've got to know his word. It's not, this is not a magic talisman that only a few can open up. Like all of us need to be in the word. I know it sounds very simple, but you, you need to be reading the word so that when life hits you, you have a, a context by which to process that. Paul understood this. He writes to the church at Rome before he got there as a prisoner in Romans 8.28, for, for those God loves and are called according to his purposes, God works all things for the good. Paul knew this, both practically and theologically, so we, we've got to be in the word. We've got to, we've got to pray for one another. We've got to pray, Lord, Lord, I don't understand why you've put this pain in my life, but I know you can use it for your glory, so would you do that? In fact, I want to pray for one another right now. 
In a minute, I'm just going to ask you, if you're bringing a, a particular burden, a particular chain in your life, just that area in your life where you do not know why God has, has felt like restricted you or has uh, disrupted your life, I want you to, in a minute, you're just going to slip up your hands and the people around you are just going to begin to pray and pray that the Lord would, would begin to reveal his good purposes. He's got 10,000 of them in there, but if he could just reveal one or two so that your joy could rise. Again, it may be a, a, just a disrupted life plan like, like we're, we've experienced, maybe a difficult relationship, maybe a, 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 a sickness or an illness, and, and you're saying, God, I want that to be used for your glory, but I don't know how. So, so now, as I close our time, before we come to this table, if that's you, um, if it's not you, praise God. I, I hope many of you uh, feel a lightness and a joy in your step, but, but it will be you someday. Life is going to hit, and it will hit hard. And so if it's you today, the Scripture tells us that we, should, we are to bear one another's burdens. And so let us not just talk about prayer. Let's pray for one another. So if that's you, and you don't have to share what it is or anything like that, you can just raise up your hand. And, and if anyone around you has that, anyone else has a particular burden, you, you need something in your life, we got a few. Just, so you see a few here. On this side of the room is good. So there we go. we got one in the back here. Okay, so if you're sitting around some of them, would you just take a moment and begin to, you can drop your hand, and we're going we're gonna to pray for those things. In this side of the room, you pray for this side of the room, apparently. Uh, but let, let's, let's pray for those things. Let's pray that God would reveal his goodness to these, to these circumstances and these people, that God would use even that for his glory. Um, and then as, as you close in prayer, you can, you can pray out loud, you can pray silently, but uh, then I'll come and close us and lead us to the Lord's table, okay? Amen. Now, there may be circumstances or things in your life where you don't understand, and God maybe hasn't revealed, hey, this is how I'm working through this very, very painful thing in your life. Maybe God hasn't revealed that. But there is one thing in history that no matter what happens in your life, you can look to and you can say, God works through suffering. And it is the cross of Christ. The cross shouts to us and says, if God can work through the cross, he can work through anything that you're going through. See, the cross was the most, uh, most painful, most uh, excruciating thing in all of history, but God accomplished the best purposes in all of history through the cross. And the cross tells us that God has a plan, no matter what. And so Jesus says, I want you to remember that. I want you to remember, even if you can't see my work in your life today, you can look to the cross and know that God is for you and not against you.